0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: sego ani Bojo Kwekwe tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Social media it connects us all in many ways and my first guest today is an associate professor at Ryerson University and works in the Faculty of Communication and Design. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: I'm glad we got that part settled. Okay, good start. His name is Greg Elmer, and I welcome him to the show. A little bit more about Greg. He is a, uh, a graduate of the University of Massachusetts. He is a Bell Globe Media Research Chair and Director of the Infoscape Research Lab at Ryerson University in Toronto as well. He also teaches in the Graduate Program in Communications and Culture for York and Ryerson Universities and the School of Radio TV Arts. He's had uh, previously held uh, faculty appointments at the Florida State University, Boston College, and the University of Pittsburgh. And he uh, lectured and published and consulted widely on contemporary surveillance technologies. Interesting. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about surveillance technologies and social media. Sure. Uh, social and political networking on the Internet and the growth of Canadian TV and film production industry. So, Greg, it's... a uh, It's a very interesting time that you are here with us today. And of course, we're here because it is election time. Yes. And uh, social media, you know, how has social media uh, changed things? How has social media, is it used these days for uh, people getting their information on election, to follow parties, to follow leaders? Um, You know, how do we we start this conversation about what social media brings to an election platform?
0: Sure. Well, I I guess it's important to to talk about elections as cycles Mm -hmm. and media, Mm -hmm. as you know, probably more than I do, works in cycles as well. Integration of new technologies, uh, new challenges, new disruptions, uh, new uh, practices by audiences and users. So all those things need to be considered when we think about the impact that the Internet is having on uh, the political process. So more specifically, so we're 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 now into our um, third uh, federal election now, uh, where inter- the internet is playing, and in particular, kind of social media and individual uh, users in their homes are are starting to contribute and play uh, an important uh, part in the uh, in the process. And so, uh, w- what I would say is that uh, I guess from the beginning, or if we kind of. Rewind, uh, we we saw a lot of uh, we saw a lot of practices being disrupted. We saw the emergence of these individuals called bloggers, mm. uh, who would share their opinions, and uh, the media and the the news broadcasters and others were were, were not quite sure exactly what role they played. Uh, same goes for the political parties, um, how they they were really uh, they were again quite disrupted. Um, uh, to to kind of overplay a term. Uh, by these new uh, political actors. Um, so, so there was an adjustment period after that, after that election cycle. Next, we, we started to see Facebook, uh, mm. social networking, um, small groups uh, start to uh, evolve online. That really helped the parties in particular um, organize, uh, fundraise, um, get out the vote, uh, get bodies to events, campaign stops, all those kinds of things. This election cycle, I think, is proving to be... Um, to be a, uh, to, to be a challenge for for a lot of people uh, i think you're you're we've really witnessed uh at least in these first couple uh, early weeks of the election campaign uh, a process of vetting
1: i think mm. is the the word that mm. really
0: comes to mind now uh vetting in terms of looking very very closely at at the history of what uh candidates in particular have said Throughout their lives, sounds really uh, terrible, doesn't it? Um, so uh, it's great for the parties in a sense because they're able to have a better sense as to who these people are that are running under their banner. Um, it's great for the parties because it, it's an ability for them to to manage um, message messages, if mm-hmm. you will, and, and and of course personalities sometimes. But I guess we also have to uh, uh, question as as, uh, as citizens whether or not this vetting is going a bit too far Mm. and people are being pushed out either uh, after they've signed up as a candidate or would never, like me, (laughs) would never ever sign up uh, because (laughs) people would be going through every single post that I've made in my life and uh, try to deconstruct my motivations Mm. and and my character. So I think that is really uh, one of the major changes that we've seen. That, That, of course, happened during the last election, but the The degree to which it's happening now, the intensification is really quite uh, remarkable.
1: What do you think that does to both parties and leaders and any politician in an election process like we are now, where you just mentioned their lives are scrutinized, pulled apart, deconstructed because of the availability of all this online um, information?
0: Sure. I think probably the, the most important thing that's that's happened that the parties have had to and the campaigns have had to do is is really uh, is try to nail down this message control. Mm. It's, what's the script? You mm. know, we know that we know that campaigns are pre-scripted. Um, live sports are to an extent mm. pre-scripted. Mm. Plays are pre-scripted. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, of yeah. course, uh, the the teams and campaigns, so to speak, have to have to change their script a little bit. Uh, but there's a lot of anticipation that needs to go into campaigns now. Um, there's, a, there's a recognition that one can be attacked for any number of things in one's life, mm. um, not just one's voting record right. or the party's record or the government's record. It's also, again, as we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, uh, personal records mm-hmm. as well that have been mm-hmm. put on, on the table for, for uh, voters to consider.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a that's a different uh, conversation, but it does it does make me wonder about um, the the mindset of of people and and how they're what they're placed up against. But you know, we do see, of course, the leaders using social media a lot for their own personal tweets, you know, uh, and to to try and bolster themselves, uh, make themselves look good. Of course, the same old, a very a very sort of PR kind of uh, motivation that I see sure. them using it for. Uh, um, but but that's very general kind of things.
0: Yeah, I yes it 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 is. Uh they need to uh the the leaders need to introduce themselves to mm-hmm. Canadians, so to speak. That that's a bit of a cliche, but you know, we have uh we have two uh, new leaders. Um, mm-hmm. Uh not counting the Bloc Quebecois, but uh, so so there there's obviously a, an effort by those campaigns uh, by the Tories and by the NDP in particular to introduce their leader, to kind of frame the personality, um, to try to create a, a connection between that person, that individual, and uh, and voters and communities and prospective voters. So I think that's an, a, an important part of what we're seeing as well over the last few weeks and going forward as well.
1: And, and from your perspective, what have you seen see change over, say, the last couple of elections, as you said, we're into the third now. And, of course, social media has not by any means decreased. It's uh, getting more and more popular. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about some of the numbers that people uh, look at in terms of uh, where it's being used. Facebook, ever popular, of course. Um, videos are, of course, huge online. Uh, and, and those messages uh, are very... You know, another thing is it's very instant. All this stuff is very instant now. Um, so... W- Aside from those uh, surface things, how how do you think that uh, social media, what role it now plays in mm-hmm. terms of either helping helping a party get elected or getting its message out, uh, other than how is it different from mainstream media?
0: Well, I think I think we've seen um, a rapid increase in the number of platforms that are being used now for political purposes. So during the last couple cycles, we, as you mentioned, we've had, uh, uh, in particular, Facebook, blogs, Twitter. Now we see um, a whole slew of other uh, platforms that are being used. Instagram, some uh, focused on, on photos, and, and Justin Trudeau's uh, been very active on Instagram. Um, YouTube has become much more political, or at least used in a, in a political sense, by campaigners and other partisans, and some uh, everyday citizens as well. Um, and then we've also seen an emergence of what, what uh, different commentators and, and researchers have called uh, kind of the, the, the fringe web, or the vernacular web, mm. or some have referred to it as the dark web. Mm. Um, and these these are these are not nice places. Typically, <laughs> uh, they tend to be uh, places where users um, are anonymous, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, tend to say uh, a lot of things that you would never. Here on the radio, or in the mainstream media, or even on the street. Um,
1: so, so, so can, the, can I ask you a question about sure. that? Then, if it's anonymous, um, why why would why would someone go there to get or trust information from it?
0: Well, um, yeah, there's there's a couple reasons there. I think before you were you were asking about you know what's what's changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how are the the campaigns adjusting, mm-hmm. and I think because there is a diversification of media sites, or I call them platforms, mm-hmm. but also including kind of mm-hmm. you know mainstream media and commercial media, public media properties, uh, legacy media, all these different terms to talk about uh, uh, your radio station, these CBC, CTV, and others. Um, is there there's a there's a real necessity now to stand out, right? So mm-hmm. not just to uh, to introduce yourself as a new player, right? But to uh, to capture attention. So there have been a lot of researchers, a lot of media, mass media researchers over the last, I would say, ten years, have been debating this uh, idea called the attention economy, right? Which is uh, which is a which is both an economic and also kind of a media term that tries to recognize now that that. There, there isn't a eight pm show. Mm. There isn't a, a dial with twelve choices, right? There's just a there's a plethora of choices. There's that real time element, or just in time. I want to watch it now. Mm-hmm. I want to hear it now. Podcasts, mm. Netflix. I could go on and on. But I think I think your your audience gets the point. What I'm trying to say is, in that larger media environment, not just in terms of choices, but also temporal choices, uh, it becomes ever more imperative to try to stand out from the crowd, right? And so this is why you have effectively, um, this is why you have the the Trumps of the world. This is why you have uh, these anonymous actors online who are saying racist and obnoxious and uh, uh, nasty things online is is to get attention, um, because that's one of the few ways in which you, you can stand out from the crowd is to say something outrageous. And I'd have to say that Trump is really quite the master of it, I think, is south of the border, right? He's kind of the, the epitome of the attention economy kind of master, if you will. Well, I
1: get the feeling that he was the master of, of those kind of things. Long before social media came along, this just gives him another way to express that. That's what I. Sure,
0: <laughs> I, I wrote an essay a couple of years ago with a colleague of mine talking about how he was the, you know, reality television president, mm. And, mm. and and you see some vestiges uh, of that today, mm. right? He's he's always trying to intervene in the media cycle just to to poke and prod. Before I think you know, ten, twenty, thirty years ago, you you talk about politicians trying to. Uh, you know, change the channel, right? mm, change the, mm, the topic mm-hmm. uh, to deflect attention, all, all these kinds of phrases. But now you, you see uh, you see a president and some, some other um, political uh, partisans and others north of the border here in Canada trying to constantly attract attention to themselves so that they become, so they get that free advertising, mm-hmm. so to speak,
1: you know. So the fact that everyone has access not only to the information, but they can share this information. Everyone can share this. They can retweet yes. it. They can do whatever they want with the information once they get it, of course. Um, how how do you think that impacts things? Um, because I get the sense from you... Saying And I I chuckled a little bit when you said wanting to stand out because the more I see stuff out there, the more it becomes the same, the more it doesn't stand out to me. Unless, of course, you get someone like Greta coming along and and she has this wonderful message and a a few choice words that just hit us where where it really counts. Mm -hmm. And that becomes even more powerful than any of this stuff.
0: Yes, yes. So, well, the sharing has changed itself Mm. too, right? I'll, mm-hmm. I'll see if I can come back around to your question, but directly to your question. But, but I think the, the, the practice of sharing's radically changed over mm-hmm. the last 10 mm-hmm. years. And 10 years ago, um, what you would have is, I would share, I, I would read something, right? And let's start, the, the Globe and Mail, it'd be an interesting take on a particular issue. And then I'd say, and then I'd email you and say, hey, David, check out, this article and I share the link with you so that mm-hmm. you could see it. And that, that, that's kind of that, 10 years ago. That was a common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, candidates would do that. Partisans would do that. Uh, everyday citizens would do that. Share, share those kind of resources, right? It's almost like, a, you know, in the university, uh, sphere, almost like, you know, a bibliography. Here mm. are the things that I'm reading. Right. Right. Or on my, mm-hmm. next to my, um, my bed, what have you. Today, um, what we're finding in the research that we're doing at Ryerson University and with our colleagues at the University of Amsterdam is that there's much less sharing of resources. Hey, look at this. Hey, go there and read that article, that opinion piece, uh, that video. And what's happening now is there's a, there is a, there, it, it, it's, I, I think probably the, the, the term that most people use is memes. Mm. They are mm. uploading memes. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of the same memes yeah. mm-hmm. but people like to take those those shared images and then add something on top of them right, right? Yeah. so it's not they're not they're not sharing as much kind of third-party um, media sources so again well, what I I'm, what I'm trying to characterize here the picture I'm trying to paint for you is one where there's increasingly individualized form of communication that's Practices, which again reaffirm this notion that you're you're trying to get people's attention, Mm -hmm. um, and you're trying to increase your reputation, right? Right. So it's not only kind of having that hot take or saying something obnoxious, but you're trying to kind of you know move up that ladder, so to speak. And one way that we're starting to see that happen is by provocations, and this is actually nothing terribly new, but it is. It is intensifying, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. that is you you try to call someone out, preferably, right, someone who's well-known, and try to get them to react. Right. Right. And I think that's something, and it becomes a little bit of an inside joke. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of practices that that, uh, communication and social practices that we're seeing more and more online, Mm -hmm. provocation, Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, what we used to call hate speech, yep. but, but now it's becoming yeah. almost uh, yeah. everyday parlance, yeah. unfortunately.
1: It, it, the word that came to mind as you were, you were describing those things was entertainment. It seems like most, all this stuff is becoming more entertainment than, than factual. Almost.
0: Sure, sure. We had uh, at least one candidate out in British Columbia who posted a meme on their campaign website, um, and it was uh, an image of uh, Rick Mercer well yeah CBC right. uh, <laughs> personality, uh, claiming that he, and the, the, the text over top of that image, I'm not sure, yes, I'm sure if I you saw that, image, this, do you yeah. remember this? Um, and, and, and so that was interesting in and of itself as a as a particular political form of communication. Right? Mm. It was a meme adopted by a political can, mm-hmm. uh, candidate in this mm-hmm. instance. But what was almost more interesting to me was the reaction or the response that the candidate or the candidate's team yes. had and that is uh, when they were called on it saying, well, this is, this is fake. Right. Mercer doesn't support you. And <laughs> Mercer was right. Was tweaked, right? Yes. He yeah. came out and said, he hey, come on. Right. This is fake. Right? Yeah. So, so he rose to that. Mm-hmm. He, he, was, he was wound up to, yes. to, to, to an extent that he responded, going to my earlier point. Uh, but the campaign's response was, was really interesting. You put your finger on it, right? It was entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, in fact, what the, the, ca- the campaign uh, came out and said. Oh, it was just a joke. Yeah. It was a lark. Yeah. Come on. Play along here. Let's have some fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> which, which of course, opens us up another conversation, to, if you wanted to go deeper down that rabbit hole, about yeah. if, in fact, it was a joke, or they were just trying to see how far they could get away with this, and, and if, you know what I mean, there's so many questions you could start asking. And Yeah, yeah.
0: I guess there, you know, we were both kind of chuckling at that, but, mm. but, um, but, 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 for sure there's there's a danger there mm-hmm. isn't there where mm-hmm. you can throw out accusations you can you can misrepresent people's opinions uh you can lie you know people yeah. don't like to use that word uh, mm-hmm. over the air, but it's true uh people can lie and misrepresent um and then turn around and say ha huh. chuckle chuckle that was a joke mm-hmm. right? so uh, you know I, I I like a good joke like, like everyone else but it, it yeah. is it is at least blurring the lines here yeah. about what has typically been a relatively somber process, right? Mm-hmm. A serious process about okay, what do you stand for, right? And and, and also importantly, and who supports you mm-hmm. in your positions? That that's been quite a. a re, I was going to say revered. I maybe that's overplaying it a little bit, but you know that's an important part of the electoral process is to be clear about. Uh, uh, about what it is that you, that you support and who it is that's supporting uh, you and your team.
1: Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and this is Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest is Greg Elmer, and he is uh, working at the University of Ryerson University in Toronto in the Faculty of Communications and Design, and in particularly the Infoscape Research Lab at Ryerson University, and he's my guest on this part of the program. We're talking about social media and the election process and how social media is being used in the campaign. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about that. I guess, how effective would you say social media has been or is being used for the parties?
0: Uh, Well, they certainly can't ignore uh, social media. Um, They they have... Uh, very robust um, uh, platforms that they use for research um, for targeting uh, who they see as probable voters um, so there, there, there's there 's both a front end and back end if you will as well right so so we we're, we definitely see a lot of the the front end through the media, the tweets of course the the attempts to frame issues, respond to crises and accusations that 's all very important, you know roughly uh almost 60% of Canadians get their election news from social media. Mm. So those are roughly the statistics that we've been seeing over the last um uh, couple years. So absolutely candidates need to be out there, campaigns need to have a, a robust um presence. But I think there's also that kind of more back end story as well that's very um, that's very important um for the campaigns, right, to manage their campaigns. To manage their resources right to to kind of target uh, their resources uh, we 've been seeing the candidates a number of the candidates here in the gta quite a bit that 's telling us a story that should mm-hmm. that should be telling us a story about what 's in play where not just where they 're spending their time but where where they're uh, spending their resources. Um, I was uh watching uh, something on television. it was a uh, West Coast channel last night, so I got to see some of the some of the messages that uh, Trudeau, in particular, is the one I saw, is uh, sending to British Columbians, mm-hmm. right, which mm-hmm. are replicated and shared uh, online as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so it's you know it's it provides the candidate, the candidates, and the campaigns with uh, a very not just robust form of communication, but very nimble form of communication, in the sense that they can uh, at any given time. Drop an accusation, <laughs> mm. and we've seen a number of those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also quickly respond to accusations. So then, I think you let off by talking about the real time nature mm-hmm. of communication as well that we're seeing. And so, in many, uh, in many ways, it's kind of created a very fragmented uh, yeah. campaign, you know, and, and stories dropping left, right, and center. And so, it, so I think that what's happening now is that. Uh, that's become kind of the social media-driven campaign. And, it's, and what we're seeing in this cycle in particular is a lot of the, the legacy media, um, news broadcasters and newspapers trying to come up with ways of sifting through all of that mess. Mm-hmm. I can use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, Fact-checking mm-hmm. has become mm-hmm. more important, and there are various news organizations that have launched different initiatives and another another kind of strategies right to try to talk about how those media are trying to talk, are trying to organize editorially right mm-hmm. on a da- on a daily basis but also what is their role in telling the story to Canadians about how this election campaign and the candidates are are doing and how it's playing out
1: is, is all social media still and I guess I'm, I'm trying to look to the future to some degree here as well but is it all still focused on the short, quick message? You know, twenty, thirty seconds, minute. You know, don't go longer than a couple of minutes, max. I mean, how is that all being used these days, for in general, and also with the in, in
0: general? I, I, I would say, I would say yes. I, I was struck by right at the beginning of the campaign, before the writ was dropped. I was, I was poking around and checking out what what the parties were doing, and I was struck by how the conservative party in particular were using a lot of text, mm. uh, like a paragraph mm. uh, uh, worth of text uh, on Twitter. Those of, those, those of your audience members that, that have Twitter accounts or, or interfaces will, will know immediately that they're very small. Mm. Mm. Um, so that was interesting. It'll be something to watch. I don't know if that's a trend, mm-hmm. but maybe they're just trying to distinguish themselves. Right. Clearly the the use of images... Yeah. have has um has proliferated and intensified again that's not something necessarily new we see that uh, with uh with news properties and websites um and newspapers too right but that that's clearly the future um there are other ways in which you can embed information within images as well and that's really uh, an invention if you will of of the of the, uh, of the internet mm-hmm. um you can always uh you can adapt messages to images. Um, back in the day, you could you could play around with images. You could focus in, do all these different things. You have the, now you have the the promise or the danger of these so called deep fakes. Where yeah, the no ability to manipulate yep. not just still images but moving exactly. images. So uh, there's a and lot voices and, of, and voices. The, yeah, And so, media in general. And there's
1: been a few of those where they have and and it, it again it undermines the credibility of. What can I trust out there?
0: Yeah, and that, that, that's a question that, that a lot of my colleagues and I and my, and my students, you know, conversations I've had with family members, like, where's where this taking us? Mm-hmm. Right? When uh, you have a system that's increasingly producing information that is unverifiable or worse, and the only outcome that I'm seeing is is a greater emphasis. On interpersonal dynamics, um, on interpersonal forms of of communication, that um, sounds a bit like I'm offering a bit of a luddite or, or anti-technology uh, mm. future. Mm. But that that's clearly one way in which we we trust each other is by having closer relationships and intimate relationships, familial uh, friendships, and the like. Right, so. So perhaps that we're going to go back to some basics around who we trust, why we trust them, and have those kind of small groups start to play a much larger, and much more important role in our society.
1: Gregor, is there anything we haven't touched on that you feel is important to mention as we wrap up our show today?
0: Well, I guess we have, uh, we have debates coming up. The debates are always key uh, times uh, during um, uh, campaigns. Um, I think that's not going to change. Uh, I think, as I was suggesting already, Canadians are distracted mm-hmm. in many ways, uh, some good some some uh, some uh, problematic but uh, but the the debates always tend to be the moment at which um, uh, attention is focused, and we're going to see that again. there'll probably be a, a lot of parsing of what the leaders say during that right down to the minutiae. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the eyebrows and the, the intonations and the flow the, all all the, the the flow of arguments all these different things right mm-hmm. so well, we'll see just a, a much more intensified uh accounting if you will <laughs> right. of, of of that event or those events right
1: well, we didn't have a chance to get into the, uh, some of the surveillance side of, uh, of things, but perhaps we'll have to have, to have you back Another on day. and, and talk we'll about that. that, if that yes, would be great. Absolutely. So Greg Elmer has been my guest on Moment of Truth. He's the Bell Globe Media Research Chair and Director of the Infoscape Research Lab at Ryerson University in Toronto. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Look forward to having you back again, Greg. Likewise, Thanks. David. Thank you. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And speaking of Ottawa, it just so happens that on the line, we have our very own Caroline O'Neill in our Ottawa sister station at 95.7 on the line. And she is here to give us an update. She's in our eyes and ears up in Ottawa and Parliament Hill uh, and with this election coverage that's going on, we want to make sure we can bring you the best. And so, Caroline, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the line, so we can talk more about the election process and what's happening.
2: Thanks for having me, David. Very happy to be back.
1: So, listen. Last time we spoke, of course, uh, there was some some things happening around the uh, the Trudeau election side of things, the the Liberal side. Now it seems that uh, things have switched a little bit. We have some some uh, things happening with the conservative side and, and, uh, and Andrew Scheer's uh, resume.
2: Right. So for anybody who has ever tweaked their resume before, um, I'm sure many people have done it, it does seem like Andrew Shear might have taken it a step too far. The Globe and Mail reported that there was no record that he received a license to work as an insurance broker, which did appear on his different political websites and channels that he worked as a broker out of Saskatchewan.
1: Yeah, so so what's your take on that? What, what do you think that has, has done? It seems to be getting some attention. I, I guess he's now addressed that, of course. But, uh, So, yeah, w- what do you think about that side of things so far?
2: Um. You know, I think it's one of those things that you can definitely take as one of those amusing kind of election stories that do come out of it. Obviously, it doesn't have the weight that the Trudeau story had in terms of the people that it impacts. But certainly, I think, you know, Bob Fife said himself, right, and the Conservative Party agreed. He took the course, but he didn't actually complete it to get the license. And even according to Robert Fife, Shear worked in the insurance agency as a gopher, not as a broker. So I've certainly seen many people kind of crafting some jokes at that expense. Um, I think, though, you know, David, one of the things that you and I were talking about was how you were mentioning, right, this is an election that seems like it is just stepping further and further away from the issues. And Mm -hmm. I think this really highlights that. The other thing I think is that we've seen this on the side of both the Liberals and the Conservatives. When you start throwing stones at another party, you do run a risk of those getting thrown back at you. Mm -hmm. So the Conservatives were very happy to take aim at the Liberals. And again, these are not the same things. They're very different. But when you do take such aim at a party for things like that, people will in turn take such aim at you. Mm -hmm. And I really hope this is something that stops because I think it's going to be a very long three weeks if this continues. But I do think that's something where you run the risk. The Liberals did it too. They were very high and mighty with some of the videos that they were pulling up about the Conservatives and then those images of Justin Trudeau face. So it seems like we're going in in this odd little cycle where it kind of continues that way.
1: Yeah, you know, mudslinging uh, is is kind of like, I think I remember Trudeau always said he wanted to take the high road and, and not go down that road, of course. But um, how do you think this compares in terms of, of how people view the leaders, right? You've had the one with, with the, the, the blackface with Trudeau, but now you've got this remis, re, resume fiasco thing that's happening with Andrew Scheer. Um, two different things altogether, but um, how do you think this is being viewed,
2: Right. Well, I mean, for the Liberals, there has been a direct impact already. A new Ipsos poll does show that the Liberals are down now in percentage points at 34%, whereas the Conservatives, are sitting at 37%. So definitely still a very tight race between the two. But the Liberals did take a hit, right? Before the writ was issued, the Liberals were two points ahead of the Conservatives. And I think something with that weight would really have an impact. Now, in regard to Andrew Scheer, I think this does kind of continue the notion that his leadership and I think especially within the party has always been contentious. He was one of many leaders running. And although he did have a profile as one of the youngest speakers of the House of Commons, he didn't necessarily have the profile of, say, somebody like Lisa Wright, for instance, right? And I think, again, this does kind of reinforce some of perhaps the The grumblings that were going on with the leadership, we also saw that when Maxime Bernier left the party to start the People's Party of Canada. And I think that was intensified because it does seem like the Conservatives are taking a step in a direction that was very different from the direction that Ron Ambrose, the previous interim leader, was trying to forge. So I think for people who have had questions and concerns about Andrew Scheer as a leader or even who he is as a politician, that would probably solidify some of those questions. But I do wonder if that is maybe more party-based than maybe for the rest, the rest of the public.
1: Okay, on that same sort of vein, uh, Andrew yeah. Scheer, the leadership, uh, there was some talk, uh, you know, a number of weeks ago about how Doug Ford was not... Uh, on the campaign trail with Andrew Shear and that there was some distance because uh, of either there was some some inter you know things going on between them, or uh, I also heard that that you know uh, that uh, Andrew Shear was described as as just a, a Doug Ford uh, uh, follower kind of thing. That he that Doug Ford was not, in fact a more more stronger leader than him.
2: Yeah, you know what? That has been a message that we've even seen prior to the ripping issue. David, I remember sitting in the House of Commons and hearing the Liberals make claims like that, or making similar messaging where they would say Andrew Shears not the leader of the party; it's actually Doug Ford. And I think when they do that, they're also hearkening to the idea that there are other very strong conservative leaders provincially too, right? Mm. When you start saying that, it's very easy for your mind to think: Well, if Doug Ford is in charge, is Jason Kenney also in charge, right? Mm. Two people with very different leadership styles than Andrew Shear, and two people who are, can also be very contentious, right? Have been forging some very contentious issues provincially. And this is something that the liberals have really been holding on to. Justin Trudeau made an announcement about education yesterday, and he basically made it in Doug Ford's backyard. And in some ways, he spoke more about Doug Ford than he did about Andrew Shear. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I guess if if you were you were thinking about voting conservative and you hear these kind of things and you you see this kind of of, uh, playing going on, I imagine it would make you want to perhaps sit back and look more closely at the players involved and to find out if this, in fact, is the way things are operating.
2: What I think will be really interesting, David, will be to see how the people of Ontario vote, Mm. because obviously we've talked a lot about Ontario provincially, and I would be interested to see if people in Ontario are happy with how things are going provincially, or if they're not happy, and if they think that they can change that by voting at a federal level. Um, And I, I really... I really do look forward to kind of see what comes out of that come October, or it, we are in October now, come October mm-hmm. 21st, mm-hmm. because I do think, like you said, these are some very strong leaders who operate in a different way than Andrew Shear does. And I do wonder how Ontarians are thinking about things after having had Doug Ford as a premier now for well over a year.
1: Mm. Now, I, I want to sidestep for a second. Um mm-hmm. we, we did have something that sort of sidelined the election process, but it, it got, did get involved with the election process, of course, and that's, that's Greta Thunberg and her whole uh, campaign and, and marches and, and climate strikes that went on that the leaders, most of them, got involved with. Uh, what's your take on that and how that affected things?
2: Well, I was actually at the climate strike here in Ottawa, nice. and there were no um, there were no federal party leaders here, and that's a bit of a rarity for Ottawa. Typically, if there's a protest, you get some big names coming out, but we are in election season, and I think I was fascinated to be there, David. Number one, there were 20,000 people, from what I've heard, in the downtown core shutting down the streets, lots and lots of young people, and... Typically, when I hear Greta Thunberg, I hear her from the context of adults and what they have to say about her. Mm -hmm. But I was interviewing some of the youth and every single young person I spoke with who were about 10 years old did bring up Greta Thunberg at some point. (laughs) So it was neat to kind of see the way the adults are kind of talking about her. And she kind of seems like a lightning rod with the adults. But then the way that young people are talking about her and what brought her out. The other thing that was very interesting to me was there were children who were about 10 years old who were telling me their thoughts on our government of the day, and I was really interested to hear some of the issues that they were aware of. Things like pipeline came up, things like the climate emergency came up. Kids tend to be fairly unfiltered, um, and they they really shared with me their thoughts on mm. what they think of current governments and other leaders.
1: Well, that's fascinating. So what did you take away from that in terms of uh, looking down the road to the future, and, and what kind of Uh, what our future uh, electors, uh, in terms of the the, the people that will be voting uh, in the next number of years, will be uh, looking at or aware of as we move down the road for elections?
2: Absolutely. First of all, climate matters to them very greatly. Mm. Um, Obviously, I'm not speaking for every single young person, but I think the fact that hundreds of thousands of young people around the world have been out over the past few weeks talking about this I think that does send a message. They're worried for their future. Um, I think a lot of them feel let down by their governments as well. I heard that from, again, children as young as 10 who were telling me that they don't think that their governments actually care about them. Or they feel that they have to be out here taking time away from school when because they think that they're the only ones who are kind of going to make a difference at that point. With mm-hmm. that kind of energy, I wonder... Within the next five to 10 years, if these students will discover activism, if some of them will look at a political future. So, I think that that certainly is an issue that matters to them. And I think that that will be something that they will care to vote about. And I think that does kind of harken back to that question, though will they vote? Millennials right now are the largest voting bloc if they go to the polls. Mm. I think this election could also serve as a good litmus test for those young people who were out at the climate strike. Mm. Will millennials feel, you know, Angry, inspired, emboldened—what have you enough to actually go to the polls in October? And will that be something that is continued to be passed down to those young people who, within the next few years, will also be able to vote?
1: Mm. Okay, well, let's uh, bring it back to the parties and and uh, some of the some of the uh, uh, bottom line kind of things. We've so had a couple of parties that have released uh, accosted platforms. Uh, what's your we what's, have. what what what's your take on those?
2: You know, I. It's getting very close to the deadline here. So the Liberals and the Green parties have both released their costed platforms, but the other parties haven't yet. So Andrew was asked yesterday about this, and he said that he does plan on having it out before the early, po- early polls on October 14th. That just, I think in an election that again has not focused on issues a lot at all, there's going to be a lot of noise for people to cut through come October 14th, which is a week before people go to vote. Mm. Um, and then same to Singh, you know, the NDP party, they have released their policy platform, but they haven't released a costed plan yet. I think that for people who maybe view the NDP as something that is often more kind of thoughts and dreams instead of faced in reality, that does reinforce that notion, right? You can have these great policy platforms, but if you can't tell people how to get there, they may not be as incentivized to vote for you Mm. but if we were to take a little look at what the liberal and the green parties have to offer there are a few interesting things the green party has committed to reach a balanced budget by 2024 2025 again i think elizabeth may has a pretty smart play going on here because she's already said she doesn't expect to be prime minister But if you were looking ahead to a potential minority government, I think she really is positioning herself as the person who could have a lot of say in how that government is formed. So Mm -hmm. I think having a kind of smart policy like that and, again, showing that you can be environmental and care about the economy as well, I think is a smart move. Other things she looked at were $5 million to promote local food, which obviously is very in line with the Green Party. One thing I thought was very interesting was a one-time $5 million cost to separate the roles of the Attorney General of Canada and the Minister of Justice. So Mm. a little bit of a callback to the SNC-Lavalin affair.
1: Right. Now, uh, you mentioned a few of the other parties. So you did mention that the Conservatives have pulled ahead a little bit in in some of the polling that you've looked at. How are the other parties doing at this point in time? Do you know?
2: Yeah, we do. So in regards to this Ipsos poll that I was looking at, that puts the Liberals at 34%. The NDP is kind of staying where they have been for a while at 15%. Interestingly enough, the Green Party is actually down at 7%. I would have thought with the surgence of the climate strike that that would have been a time for the Green Party to really move ahead. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't been the case. And then the bloc is sitting at about 5%, but within Quebec, that would be 22%.
1: And uh, is there anything on the People's Party of Canada, Maxim Bernier? What's, uh...
2: What I have heard for the People's Party of Canada is that when you look at kind of the different voters in terms of gender, he typically kind of sits at about 2% with women. Mm-hmm. For a lot of the things that he's often left out of, I will be interested to see what polls will look like come the leaders debate next week, because he will be on the stage. Mm-hmm. So I think when he's included more, and I certainly think that It'll be, I think, probably a fairly good week for Maxime Bernier because he's very boisterous, and I'm sure he'll certainly be happy to go after Trudeau, but then he'll also have the French-language debate, and I would assume that he will probably come across as one of the more stronger people just in terms of his own French background.
1: Well, that's interesting that you mention that. How do you think that will then reflect in terms of the Trudeau, Maxime Bernier, and, and Andrew Scheer kind of connection there as they debate things out?
2: I think that for Scheer, the French debate will be A harder one for him because, again, I do think Bernier is going to certainly be at the advantage there. It's a language he's very comfortable in. He'll be able to really go at it with Trudeau. I think that for sure he really does run the risk of getting cast aside in that debate. With the other party leaders there um, for the English debate, I think that, again, it's going to be tricky territory. Bernier, I think, will... He will have, he'll be facing not just Justin Trudeau, but he'll also be facing Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May, and I think on some of the more progressive issues, the three of them will hold him to task. Elizabeth May is quite a strong debater, so I think she won't have a problem holding Bernier to task. She had no problem holding Scheer to task. I'll be interested to see what that's like with Jagmeet Singh. And I will be interested to see where Andrew Shear finds his place in all of that, because those are some very big personalities. Mm -hmm. And I think depending on the dynamics and depending on what's happening, it will be hard for people to forge their paths. Now, when Justin Trudeau wasn't at the previous debate, Shear really did talk about SNC-Lavalin a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if he does that again. And I think that would be very smart, because it would be very easy to say that Trudeau hadn't been present at the other debates because he was running away from that mm-hmm. issue. And mm-hmm. I mean, you could only kind of make that even stronger by then bringing into play the blackface and the brownface pictures.
1: Yeah, yeah. OK, well, let's uh, let's move on to a couple of other things with the election and, and things that are happening. Um, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation released the names of 2,800 children who died in residential schools the other day.
2: They did, a very emotional day down at the Canadian History Museum in Gatineau. Names like Joseph Cardinal, names like John Anderson, Samson Samson Edgar, you know, people that we really should be remembering. And these are just three of the 2,800 children who did die in residential schools on a 50-metre-long cloth. And the other thing that they do say is that those are not the only children. Mm -hmm. There's an estimated 4,000 more who did also die in care, and then there are also some who just went missing in the system. And the reason that this was done was this was actually one of the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action. This was call to action number 72, which was to develop and maintain a student death registry. So an incredibly heavy day. But I think, again, having a record is a really important thing to do because we should not be forgetting those names of those children.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, also uh, Ken Jackson's reporting about the 102 Indigenous children dying in the welfare system.
2: And that, I think, was a really... Powerful example of journalism that doesn 't have to be done on the campaign trailer on a campaign plane, Ken Jackson is working out of the Ottawa Bureau right now, but his reporting did make its way to the campaign trail um, and again, this is very heavy um, for people who read it it 's difficult to read it 's called Death as Expected mm. and he looks at the fact that one hundred and two indigenous children died in the Ontario government care between two thousand and thirteen to two thousand and seventeen. But it's not just the Ontario government who takes some of the blame. One of the things that he notes is that um, it took two years for the Trudeau government to respond to multiple orders for funding made by the Canada Human Rights Tribunal, and that they were saying that they were found severely underfunded back in 2018. And so this does call into question, you know, again, the commitments of reconciliation. And I think Justin Trudeau's commitment to reconciliation has been described as shaky at best since snc and since February. Mm -hmm. But this is something that I think cuts a lot more deep and it's a lot more tangible because when we talk about lives being at stake, this is an example of that. Mm -hmm. It also calls into question how provincial governments collect their data in terms of what's going on here. So I think this was some really powerful reporting. And I hope that I hope that it was also good for people to see that it did make its way to the campaign trail. Um, Justin Trudeau was asked about this, but it wasn't just Justin Trudeau. Globe, a Globe and Mail reporter also asked Andrew Scheer about this, mm. and also asked about the fact that he is part of a government that has been known for taking away money from different Indigenous organizations, so I think it was important that it made its way to the campaign trail.
1: Yeah, uh, so did you hear any answers from these leaders?
2: One of the things that Andrew Scheer was saying was that he does want to work more with Indigenous leaders and with different communities to see what he can do. I don't know if he necessarily expected to be asked about being part of a government that has historically worked in a different way. So that was kind of the answer that they had there. And then with Justin Trudeau, we did hear about the commitment to reconciliation as well as the commitment to do to do more. And again, part of what we're seeing with Justin Trudeau are some of these key pieces of legislation that did die in the Senate mm. before the rip was issued, right? So things like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I think a big part of their campaign message has been, if you elect us again, we will make those a reality. But then on the flip side, you have the people who do say, this was something you promised us, right. Right. and you did let this legislation die. That's and right. I think for those people, it might be reinforcing
1: that. hmm and so now that we're we're talking about the indigenous side of these things, uh, do you have any sense of of what the indigenous population will be doing uh, if if they che- choose to vote? Because there is a question about uh, whether indigenous people will rise to to come to uh, to the election polls.
2: I think that's a really interesting question, David, because I think there's a lot to unpack. I have spoken with some indigenous voters myself, and first of all, in twenty fifteen the Liberal government was elected because of young people and because of Indigenous voters. Mm. And the Liberal government could easily not get that success, again, because of young people and because of Indigenous voters. The one thing I wanted to highlight, David, was what you said about Indigenous peoples not necessarily feeling compelled to vote. And I think that's a really good place to start because obviously Canada is founded on unceded Indigenous lands. And for some people, there is such a distrust in the government and the system to begin with that there is no incentive and there is no reason to vote. And I think that we often talk about pushes for young people to vote, and I think that's a great thing. I think young people should be voting. I think different people should vote if they feel inclined. I think that non-Indigenous people need to be very careful about trying to force Indigenous peoples to vote or make them feel like they need to vote, because I think it's a very different situation, and the relationship with the government is very different. And I think a lot of people put their faith in Justin Trudeau, and I think they really felt... For some people, that was their first time placing that face there. And I think that they really do feel that that was operated in a way that perhaps was not genuine and was not maybe what it was advertised as back in 2015.
1: Mm. You know, you, put a, you mentioned a word there that I picked up on, and you said relationship. And that relationship with the Indigenous population and the Canadian government, of course, um, is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily uh, understand or are aware of, and that is many Indigenous people consider the relationship to be a nation-to-nation relationship. So uh, voting, uh, they, many people feel they don't need to vote or they shouldn't be voting because it's not part; they're not part of Canada. They have relationships with the Crown, and going back to these to the original treaties that were signed. And uh, so that's, that's one side of it. Of course, I've, I've also uh, recently saw something by the, uh, uh, the AFN national chief who said that uh, he's trying to convince people to look at maybe uh, considering it as a dual citizenship so that they would vote. I thought that was kind of interesting.
2: I do think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, as a non-Indigenous person myself, and obviously as a journalist, it's not for me to tell people to vote or how to vote, but I definitely think that People can get very passionate in times of election, and I think that that's great, and I know that there are many people who are very grateful to have the right to vote. but I think that you people need to be mindful about who you're projecting that gratitude and those semblance uh, and those thoughts about voting rights onto, because as you said, for some people, if it's a nation to nation agreement that wouldn't that's not valid anyway mm-hmm. or for people who don't have trust in the system, right, for people who were impacted by the 60s scoop or impacted by the millennial scoop or residential schools, that is a very different lack of faith in the government than your average Canadian who might just kind of be fed up with the system. It's, it has different impacts. It continues to impact people differently. So I think when we have those conversations I think that it's wonderful to have outreach and to encourage people to vote. And like you mentioned, the prospect of dual citizenship for Indigenous peoples who want to vote, who want to run and think that that's where they can make their impact. That's great. But for Indigenous peoples who feel that they can make their impact elsewhere, I think that's something that also needs to be respected.
1: Mm -hmm. Caroline, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on the line and discuss things, especially as we are in the throes of this uh, sort of halfway mark of the election process. And um, I'm just wondering, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you feel is important to mention or share?
2: Well, I know you had somebody on talking about social media, and I wasn't sure if that was something you wanted to touch on a little bit more, David, kind of the role that social media will be playing in the election or is playing already.
1: (laughs) By all means, what do you got?
2: (laughs) You know, one of the things that I saw um, that I found very amusing was Facebook was encouraging people to register to vote, and you could click on a link and it would take you to Elections Canada I found that to be a little amusing because whenever I think about Facebook and elections, I always think about the uh, US federal election and Cambridge Analytica. Mm. So even though it might take me to a different link, I don't think I would ever be comfortable using Facebook (laughs) as my portal to voting, (laughs) only because I can only think about the US federal election. Mm. So nice try Facebook. (laughs) I don't know if it'll impact other people, but that certainly wasn't the route that I was taking um but you know facebook again is having a real impact on this election if we look mm. at canada proud they have millions of facebook followers millions of people watch look at their posts and they're run by jeff ballingall who's actually a former conservative party of canada staffer mm. and ontario proud which is a similar run group had a very strong impact on the ontario election and i think in general for something like facebook they're looking to get reaction and emotion they're not really looking to share fact so i think for people who are online, seeing that, I think it's really easy to read a post and maybe think you have all of the information. But I would definitely suggest doing your own research. If you want to click on a link to Elections Canada, have at it. It's your life. <laughs> um, I don't know if I would, because again, I just I think about uh, Mark Zuckerberg testifying to U.S. Congress. So, mm.
1: interesting comment, Caroline. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned the word emotion because that very much seems like the way things are are kind of. Uh, going, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I mentioned to you, and you brought this up earlier, was that uh, this comment I, I saw or heard about the election process that it's not about the, the issues, it's not about the platform or the, par- or the party, it's about whose face you can, uh, you, you can stand to look at for the next four years. And I just thought, wow, what, what, a, what a comment to make, you know, about how things have changed or where, where things are going.
2: Yeah, I think that is a really damning testament to where things are right now. I also think it's really putting the emphasis on the wrong people. Elections are, of course, supposed to be about people, but they're supposed to be about the electorate. Mm. Where people are right now across this country, what do they need? What do they like? Who's working for them. It was never supposed to be about those leaders. And I think somewhere along the way, this election has really lost track of that.
1: Nicely said, Caroline. We're going to check in with you, of course, next week, and we'll see how things have changed or not. And we certainly will uh, be keeping an eye on the process of the debates. And I look forward to uh, hearing from you on those things as well. And it's great speaking with you today. And I look forward to having you on the show again next week.
2: Perfect. Have a great week. I look forward to chatting with you.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. That's Caroline O'Neill in our Ottawa sister station at 95.7. She is our eyes and ears on Parliament Hill. And it's been great having her on the show. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth.